Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm here as usual with Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and author, and he's my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Forrest, and I'm thoroughly psyched about our guest today, Dr. Gabor Matei. I met you, Gabor, in Vancouver, you probably recall, 10-ish years ago. And I can tell you the thought I had about you at the time, sitting there and kind of the table in the front in some kind of panel, I suspect. And I thought to myself, this guy is brilliant and he is hardcore. <laughs> and what I mean by that, <laughs> hardcore, was complimentary. Just deep, radical, penetrating, no bull, not kidding around. And so I'm thoroughly delighted to be able to talk with you today, including about a book that I think truly is a genuine masterwork that we will get into in some detail. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for being here. Forrest, Rick, thank you for having me. Uh, Rick, you know that the uh, appreciation is absolutely reciprocal. Oh, thank you. Your work in introducing Buddhism in the light of modern science, but in a very gentle and accessible way has meant a lot to me as it has a lot to other people as well. So mm. it's also great to be with the father-son duo because I work with my sons extensively as well as I did on this book. So it's just a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Again, just would echo everything that my dad said. So great to be here with you. And I'm also very interested in your working relationship with your son, of course, because we have our own <laughs> our own dynamic there, our own working relationship. And to name the new book, it's The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, which you wrote with your son, Daniel. And I would love to start with the subtitle of the book, which is a big subtitle. It's a provocative subtitle. And I'm curious what you mean specifically by a toxic culture, which is itself kind of a big question, but also just what you've been thinking about as you've been in the milieu of writing this book. So the book is a combination of all my decades of medical work and also uh, healing work and also mm. self-growth of self-awareness. Yeah has been necessary for me because believe me, I would not want to be as unaware as I was <laughs> a week ago, never mind 40 years ago. Yeah. So toxic culture, really the concept is very simple and it's actually directly related to laboratory science. If you're growing organisms in a laboratory, in a broth, you'd call that a culture broth. Mm. That's a culture. So you're culturing organisms. Now, as we pointed in the introduction to this book, if in that culture broth, these organisms were genetically sound, but they were not thriving, they were falling ill or dying in large numbers, you'd think there was something wrong with that culture broth. You'd call it a toxic culture. And when we look at our society, the increasing rates of mental illness, childhood suicide, kids being diagnosed left, right, and center with one so-called disorder after another, rise in addictions and addiction deaths, the rising of autoimmune illness, all the social dysfunction that we see in the United States, your country, something like 70% of adults are on one medication or another. Either we see it as an individual phenomena, which I don't, or we see it as the outcome of a broad social, cultural, economic situation. And if that's the case, then the culture that we live in, according to the product or the results that it manifests, is a toxic culture. Mm. This is where we have to challenge the usual medical way of looking at it, of as in, people as individuals, it's all individual organs and systems and in and, and an isolated body. Whereas the only way to really understand human beings is, as is, is, is Rick well knows from the Buddhist perspective, 
is from the vision of interdependent co-arising. We are biopsychosocial creatures, to put it in the modern medical terms. Therefore, if we're falling ill and not doing well, that's not individual predispositions or failures. There's something wrong with the culture. Mm. Hence the phrase, toxic culture. That's really a beautiful summary of a very, very big idea. And one of the things that really struck me as I was in the process of engaging with the book, engaging with the material, were the ways in which you situate almost all of it relationally. To apply my language to yours, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but that's how it felt to me. And how there's this major this major focus on the ways in which we, we put pressure on each other in ways large and small, and therefore also the ways in which the broader culture puts pressure on us. Yes. A respected mutual acquaintance of ours, Dr. Dan Siegel, talks about mm-hmm. what he calls interpersonal neurobiology, that our brains and the function of our nervous systems are not isolated phenomena, but they're related to our relationships and that we affect each other's nervous systems. And the brain itself is a social construct, a social product mm. from its development beginning in the womb. And it's forever affected by our relationships. Now, Dan being a psychiatrist, he was focusing on the brain and the mind. Me being a general physician, I'm interested in the whole body. And I'm simply mm. taking his concept of interpersonal neurobiology, which scientifically is the only legitimate way of understanding it, and applying it to our biology in general. So I talk about interpersonal mm. biology. And I'm saying that our physiology from conception onwards and throughout our lifetime is affected by our relationships and Mm. is modulated by our relationships. And so that a lot of the pathology that we diagnose as individual pathology, in fact, represents our relationships from the earliest days of our life in the womb to our deaths. It reflects our relationships and how other people act on us and how we act on other people and how we co-create each other's physiology. Mm. Now, there's nothing new about that concept. The Buddha said as much 2,500 years ago. And there was a good reason why Nietzsche called Buddha the greatest of physiologists, because the Buddha really got not just the mind, but the physiology. But traditional medicinal practices have understood this interactive unity forever. Western science, for its brilliance, has created cleavages where in life there aren't any. So all we're Mm. doing is restoring a concept that is age-old, but we're doing so in the context of Western science because we have the science now to prove all that human intuition has always said. My problem with the medical profession, or I don't mean individuals in it, but I mean as an institution, is that it doesn't even follow modern science. Hmm. In separating the mind and the body and the individual from the environment and without regarding the social environment, modern medicine actually is unscientific in its practice. Gabor, I'm so struck by your play on the word culture and the notion of the Petri dish and so forth. And I was also really struck in the introduction, you quote David Foster Wallace, you tell his story, which maybe you'll want to introduce as well about water. And so it's the water we swim in. And then maybe on that basis, if you don't mind, you could contrast a truly healthy culture in the Petri dish, mm-hmm. that's the human biological template, and, and then contrast it with the culture we often unknowingly, without recognizing that we're in water, that we live in today. Well, thank you. The story that David, the late David Foster Wallace, and he's a very tragic case himself, having committed suicide, but he was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And 
at a commencement address at a university, he once gave this uh, story of two young fish swimming along, and an older fish comes along and says, Howdy, boys, how's the water today? And the two young fish swim on for a while, and then one of them turns to the other one and says, What the hell is water? Yeah. And the point that Wallace is making is that when we're in a milieu that we don't know any better, we're not even aware of it. We just think this is reality and we're not more normality and we're not even looking at, we're so a part of it that we can't tell the distinction that we're actually in water. And therefore, we're, it's too close to us to examine objectively. And that's the point he was making about this culture. And he actually said that the failure to do that examination can have fatal consequences, which is medically absolutely true. Now, in terms of contrasting cultures, that's a difficult one. But here's what we can say about modern culture, is that for all the wealth that is generated, for all its astonishing technological and scientific achievements, for all the brilliant medical advances that it has promulgated, it has significantly misses something about human beings. Now, if you understand human beings, if you understand a lion or an orangutan or a whale, you can't study them in a zoo or in an aquarium. You have to study them in their natural environment if you really want to understand their nature and what they're capable of. Now, the same with human beings. Now, if you look at human beings, we didn't evolve in cities and in, and in highly technological societies. We evolved out there in nature. In fact, for millions of years, our pre-hominin ancestors and our hominin ancestors and our own species itself lived out there in nature in small band hunter-gatherer groups. We adapt to that environment. In that environment, we develop certain needs. The way you judge a culture is not simply by its achievements or by its failures, for that matter, but to what extent does it honor or disregard essential human needs? And that means from conception onwards. So there are certain human needs of the child, such as unconditional security, secure attachment with the parents. Not having to work to make that relationship work. Mm. Not having to be good, not having to be fast, not having to be smart, not having to be compliant. Just being is good enough. So the child doesn't have to work to make that relationship function. The capacity to feel our, all our emotions, our anger, our grief, our joy, everything. Which incidentally is what Buddhist practice is all about. It's not about suppressing any particular feeling or emotion, but to observe it. But to allowing it at the same time. Mm. And number four, free play out there in nature. That's the fourth need of the child. Now, in terms of adults, we also have needs. Needs for belonging, needs for connection, need for meaning, a need for transcendence, a need for competence, a need for mastery, a need for authenticity, autonomy. These are essential human needs that evolution has prepared us for. So how you gauge the society then is to what degree does it meet the needs of human beings as evolution has prepared them? Now, when it comes to the needs of children, we trample all over them in ways we can talk about. Mm. And when it comes to connection and meaning, authenticity and mastery and the sense of agency in one's life, well, it tramples on those needs as well of adults. And that's what makes the culture toxic, mm. is that it, it, it does not meet the needs of human beings. It meets some needs in the physical sense, even that in a very unequal and unfair manner, but it does to some degree. But the emotional, psychological, spiritual needs that are just as much as a part of us, if anything, it tramples all over them.
One of the things that I've heard you say in the past, Gabor, is that our personality is an adaptation. That is essentially a bundle of genuine traits, which are true to us on some level, yes. and conditioned coping responses that arise out of interaction with our environment. Yeah. Which points to what you're saying. If the environment is problematic, problematic behaviors will arise out of it. So what are some of the conditioned responses that you think are more problematic in people's behavior maybe for them that are coming out of this toxic culture? Well, so children have certain needs. Mm. One is for attention, just for who they are, just attention. That's a need of the child. That's as much of a need of the child as food and water. I'm talking about a developmental need. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a need of the child. And attention from adults Unconditional attention from adults actually helps to promote the growth of the brain. Mm -hmm. It's essential for essential brain circuits. A child that doesn't get the attention that they need, they will be consumed by attracting attention. Mm. Hence the $50 billion cosmetic surgery industry. People are just desperate to be attractive. Why? Because they didn't get their needs met. A child who wasn't made to feel important just for their existence which again is a developmental need. You really need to matter to your parents, not because you did this or that, but just because you exist. Mm. Now, if you don't get that sense that you're important just who you are, you become a compulsive helper. And now you spend your life, how can I help other people so that they'll be important? Mm -hmm. I know that one. <laughs> it's part of what drove me into medical school and drove a lot of my career as a physician, is that need to be important. It's not only that I wanted to help people, I did, but I had a personal need to be important. And to mm. that degree, it becomes addictive. Mm -hmm. A person who wasn't liked for who they are will become very nice. And if I become very nice, I'll suppress my healthy anger because I'll be afraid that if I'm angry, I won't be liked. Mm. And then what's going to happen is a lot of people will come to your funeral and say how nice you were. Too bad you died so young. Because that suppression of healthy anger actually promotes illness in ways that we can talk about. If you weren't loved for who you were, you might become very charming. So you have this charming personality. And how many of these desperately charming personalities have we seen in public life, in entertainment or private life or in politics? Mm -hmm. These personality traits, they're not who you are. They are substitutes masquerading as you. Mm -hmm. But they're substitutes that you adopted because you needed to be accepted and loved. And if you weren't loved, accepted for who you were, you will develop these traits, not deliberately, not as a manipulative strategy, but as an automatic response. And then you think, you, I'm my personality. I'm this way and I'm that way. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not. You're not that way at all. You've become that way. It's become your second nature. And think of that phrase, second nature. What does that imply? Mm, that there's some deeper first nature, yeah. This is a deeper first nature. Yeah. So a major focus of your work that I think we're kind of wandering our way to here is addiction. Yeah. And addiction, as you talk about all the time, is itself a coping response. And your framework of addiction is a major pushback, at least in my view, on our common conception of it and many aspects of the medical model of it. So I'd love to take a moment here for, to just let you give your definition of addiction, which I think is the best one out there. Yeah. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about how addiction arises out of some of the problems that are structured into our society. Sure. We devoted two chapters to the subject because it's, it's so important. So I define addiction as manifested in any behavior 
in which a person finds temporary relief or pleasure and therefore craves, but suffers negative, negative consequences as a result of and does not or cannot give up despite negative consequences. So pleasure mm. craving in the short term, harm in the long term, inability or refusal to give it up. That's what addiction is. Now, first of all, notice that I didn't say anything about drugs. Usually we think of addiction as only related to drugs, but actually by my definition, it could be yes to substances, was the case with many of the people I worked with as a physician, but also to pornography, to sex, to gambling, even to meditation, I would say, because it's not the external activity, it's the internal relationship to it. If there's mm. temporary pleasure, relief, and craving, but negative consequence, you got an addiction, I don't care what it is. Sex, of course, gambling, shopping, eating, work, any number of activities. But that's what an addiction is. And as to what it's all about, the mainstream mantra is that the, the legal misbelief is that it's some kind of a choice that people are making. Yeah, totally. If people are not making a conscious choice, what on earth are we doing jailing and punishing them for being addicted? Mm. So that the whole legal system is based on a falsehood which is that addiction is, is, is a choice. It's not a choice for anybody, number one. Number two, the medical view is that it's an inherited, or at least it's a partially inherited disease, about 30, 50% genetically determined. It's a disease of the brain, number one. It's not genetic. And number two, it's not a disease, which I can easily demonstrate for you. You've heard my definition, relief, pleasure, craving in the short term, harm in the long term, difficulty giving up. So what I'll ask you to is to tell me if ever in your life, I don't care what it was or when, but have you ever had, according to that definition, an addictive pattern in your life? So maybe yes, maybe no, I'm just asking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to ask you what it was or when it was for how long or what was wrong with it. I'm going to ask you what mm. was right about it. What did it give you in a short term that you wanted? Soothing for me. Okay. Yeah. When does somebody need soothing? When there's something that hurts. Yeah, so when there's pain. Yeah. Rick, what would you say? What did it do for you? Whatever it was, whenever it was. It was fun. It was fun. I mean, in my <laughs> 20s, I partied hard, and it was fun. And it was also, speaking of situating it socially, it was part of my age, my group, my culture, counterculture, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Very good. Yeah. And it also, I would have to say, you know, as to the analgesic functions of it too, in addition to the fun, there's a subtle dimension to this. In other words, I think there is a longing in everyone somewhere, somewhere down for a return to Eden, you know, going back to what's the proper culture, what's the proper milieu that, that is healthy. So there was a, a, and for me, ultimately it's, it goes into mysterious, timeless, absolutely transpersonal aspects. So a longing for that, yeah. a wounding around feeling separated from that which is then anesthetized by the intensities of the transports I would experience with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But then I'd always come back to earth and uh, I'm still separate. I'm still. Yeah. Mm. So great. So everything both of you guys said is absolutely wonderful, isn't it? When you have pain, it's wonderful to have your pain soothed. When you're mm. separate, it's wonderful to belong. Yeah. When you're not having enough joy in your life, it's wonderful to have fun. In other words, the addiction wasn't your primary problem. The addiction was your attempt to solve a problem of pain, analgesia, as, as Ricky put it, of separation, mm -hmm. of 
lack of sufficient engagement with life so that you have to have fun in ways that created some harm. You know, in other words, again, the addiction is not a primary disease. It's an attempt to solve a problem. And that problem is fundamentally that of some separation from aspects of ourselves, which is an imprint of trauma is the way I understand it. And so basically what I'm saying is that addiction is a response. It's a normal response to trauma. When I talk about the myth of normal, what I'm saying is that the addiction is considered an abnormality. No, it isn't. It's a normal response to abnormal circumstances. And those abnormal circumstances is where you were hurt so much or so separated from yourself so much that you had to resort to some external means of dealing with it. So it's neither a choice, because nobody chooses to have pain, nor is it a disease. It's an attempt to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And to understand it and to deal with it both effectively and, and compassionately. By the way, the two are the same. If you're not compassionate, you're not effective. You have to understand the sources. I feel like asking you I, what I think is a dumb question, but I'll ask it anyway, which is when I think about this pain, yeah, the pain mat, the pain body, you know, yeah. Eckhart Tolle's term, but the pain we acquire. And then I think about the emphasis in your book on lower T trauma, yeah, as it were. So the accumulation of pain, lower T trauma. And then I think about my own childhood and life and I sort of wonder if you can separate or we should separate or we shouldn't separate the sources of those small t traumas that are clearly in the culture, like obviously systemic racism, bias of various kinds, or wage slavery, capitalist pressures of various kinds. Okay. Then I think about just the ordinary process, in my case, of being young, going through school, kind of shy. And feeling like an outsider, unwanted, unseen, not abused or traumatized, but just worthless, cast to the side. Or just the ordinary neurotic, you know, mishigas in my family. My mom, my dad, their dynamic, the spillover. Do you make any kind of distinction between sources of small t trauma that are clearly connected to large-scale political economic systems and those that are just the stuff, not the they're any smaller, but are simply the stuff in families and in, with peers that are not so driven by large-scale forces? It's a great question, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. But before I do, is it okay if I come back to you with a question? Please, yeah. If as a psychologist, somebody comes to you, mm-hmm. says, Dr. Hansen, I'm suffering such and such, and I'm having anxiety, or I'm having an addiction issue, or having a relational issues, and then you talk to them about their childhood and you describe your childhood. Would you say to them, well, hey, you know, that's small T stuff compared to the big thing that people really experience, like what about racism and oppression? Think of all the misery that, would you say that to them? Oh, no, I, I of course wouldn't. Why wouldn't you say that to them? Well, the way you framed it there wasn't how I said it in terms of privileging or making yeah. large scale forces worse. Because it tends to, it would make a person, I think, understandably feel somehow diminished as if their suffering didn't matter because it wasn't connected to a Marxist critique of, you know, the means of production or something. Let's go back, if you permit me, to to what you said about your childhood. Yeah. I would argue that the problem isn't that you were shy or isolated. Here's the question I would ask you. When you felt in pain about that, when you felt sad Mm. and lonely, who did you speak to? No one. Now, you've got a son here. 
ideally, if he's five years old or seven years old and he's sad and lonely, who would you want him to talk to? Me, his mom, or some other wise person, yeah. Right. And if Forrest felt, as a five-year-old, sad and lonely, and he didn't come to you and talk to you about it, or his mom, how would you interpret that? How would you explain it? I and or his mom were not available, or we pushed him away, or through our own modeling, we sent messages that this is something to handle inside yourself, if at all. How does that feel to a five-year-old? Lonely, if that were what the five-year-old were feeling. Uh, yeah, lonely, and also a kind of internal division. Yeah. You know, as if, yeah. oh, this pain is not allowed. It's not good. There must be something wrong with me. Everybody else around me looks like they have a happy, smiley face. They all seem fine. Exactly. Ooh, I must be damaged in some way. I would also add to that terrifying, because to be alone as a five-year-old is terrifying. Okay, now, yeah. so I would say that what you, call, what you called your small-tea trauma is not so small-tea at all, okay? Mm. That's the first point I would make, okay? Yeah. The second point I would make is, yes, you're absolutely right. We have to make these distinctions, that there are people who are subjected for historical, economic, systemic reasons to degrees of culturally validated trauma, I mean, culturally normalized trauma, that some of us who are, grew up more privileged just can't even fathom. Mm. And this is certainly the true in my work with indigenous Canadians who've been exposed to unfathomable deaths of trauma yeah. for 150 years. And there's a good reason why in Canada, 30% of the people in jail are indigenous people. They make up 5% of the population. Yeah. I was working with a highly addicted segment of the population here in Vancouver, 30% were indigenous, 5% of the population. If you look at the women jail population in this country, it's 50% are indigenous women, the mm. 5% of the population. Why is that? It's because of the unspeakable trauma that was visited upon them for generations upon generations upon generations. A delegation of Canadian indigenous people was at the Vatican last week, as we speak, where the Pope issued a very paltry very partial, very parsimonious papal apology for what some Catholics did in residential schools where native kids were sexually, physically abused, where they died, where their bodies are just being discovered. And the Pope said, I'm sorry for what some Catholics did at these church-run institutions for over 100 years. We have to recognize that, we have to honor it, because if we don't, we're not going to correct the ongoing sources of it. So yes, I agree that we have to make that distinction. I'd never want to, nor would you, minimize anybody's trauma, no matter whether we write it with a capital or a small t. Mm -hmm. Gabor, I felt some anger in you right there, and I don't know if you did feel it, but it seemed that way, and it immediately made me wonder about the difference between anger directed internally and anger yeah. directed externally it seems like it's so appropriate, obviously, to have anger like that directed externally. And I think back <laughs> my own, you know, I think of it as a C minus social emotional childhood at that dimension while we had, you know, enough food to eat and all yeah. that. But psychologically, I give it a C minus. Yeah. There was a lot of anger directed internally that actually was properly, should have been external, including at the culture altogether, et cetera, et cetera. And 
Let me reflect first of all on your observation. Did I have anger here? I really care about it, Rick. I have a lot of passion around it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, when I think of the papal apology and how belated and how partial it was, yeah, I have anger about that. Yeah. It needs to be much more than that. Yeah. Without going on about that particular example, though, uh, yeah, you identified it correctly. In terms of anger itself, there is healthy anger. The anger is part of our brain apparatus. The great, late, unfortunately late, great neuroscientist and emotional researcher, Dr. Yak Panksepp, talked about these different brain systems that we share with other mammals. And they include love and caring. He calls it care, C-A-R-E. They include grief and panic, which is what the infant feels on separation. It includes fear, which is an appropriate response to a danger. It involves lust, obviously is essential for procreation. It involves seeking, where we are willing to, or in fact, are called to explore a novel environment, seek food, seek sexual partners. Play, he says there's brain systems for all this. These are essential for human development. Play is really important for human development, and that's, that's another need that's denied in our society. But then there's a brain system for what he calls rage. Mm. Healthy anger, totally essential. Healthy anger is when you need to protect your boundaries, whether those are physical or emotional. So your you know, anger is not destructive. In fact, it, it can prevent destruction. Because if you enter my space somehow inappropriately, then when I say, you're in my space, get out, that might prevent a physical altercation where neither of us needs to get hurt. But as soon as it's done its job, it's gone. It was a boundary defense. It's played its role. No need to hang around. That brain system has done mm. its job. There is an unhealthier anger, which is actually suppressed rage that's suppressed in childhood and then blows out of you like a volcano as an adult. Mm. Now, the repression of healthy anger promotes physical illness because the immune system is totally not connected with, but part and parcel of the same system that the emotional system is. So the nervous system, the hormonal apparatus, the immune system, the emotional system, these are all the same system, different aspects, specialized aspects of the same system. So if you think about it this way, the role of emotions is basically to keep out what's unhealthy and unwelcome and dangerous, in my space, get out, or, hey, come here, hug me. Mm. So the role of the emotional system is to invite in what's healthy and nourishing and welcome and keep out what is unwelcome and dangerous. Let me ask you a trick question. What's the role of the immune system? Keep out the things that are dangerous. Yeah. And to let in the ones that are... Healthy, ideally, yeah. That's how the immune system works. Yeah. It recognizes what is healthy and what is unhealthy, will attack the unhealthy, try to destroy it, and let, let in nutrients mm -hmm. and vitamins and healthy bacteria and so on. They have the same role. Mm. Not only do they have the same role, they have the same system. They're totally connected, interconnected in multiple ways. When we're repressing our healthy anger, we're also messing with our immune system. What I'm saying is that the repression of healthy anger, being really nice, is actually, first of all, an uh, adaptive trait that we developed in childhood, becomes part of our personality, we think that's who we are. And at the same time, it's a hazard to our immune system and to our physiological health. Mm. So this is how the mind-body unity is just unshakably 
unified. On, on the other hand, if I just unhealthy rage, it triggers the sympathetic nervous system, it narrows your arteries, elevates your blood pressure, increases in clotting factors, makes you more prone for heart disease and strokes and high blood pressure. So on the one hand, you have the repression of healthy anger. It leads to all kinds of illnesses where this contributes to the onset of these illnesses. Then you have the unhealthy rage that also is physiologically unhealthy. In a way, you have a kind of psychological autoimmune illness. In other words, in an autoimmune illness, we have the immune system attacking some part or system in the body as alien, yeah. when in, in fact it's not. And in much the same way, when, we're, when we divide ourselves internally, yeah. when we make that terrible choice between authenticity or attachment, as you say, and we, we choose attachment, which is the seemingly sensible choice, but it's the problematic one long-term, right at the time. Yeah. We give up our authenticity, we divide ourselves, we exile parts of ourselves out, and then yeah. including potentially anger and or we get angry at parts of ourselves that we exile. Yeah. And that's a kind of mental autoimmune illness. Exactly. And just as that anger that you repress, it doesn't evaporate, it just turns against itself. So can yeah. the immune system turn against itself. And because of the unity of these two systems. You're talking the language you now of our mutual friend, I think, Dick Schwartz, these uh, mm -hmm. the internal family system, we're parts of ourselves. Yeah. And, Dick and I have great conversations about this. We're very much in unity. In fact, Dick did a study with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, yeah. where these parts, as you call them, that are exiled, that turns against the self, manifest mm -hmm. in rheumatoid arthritis. And when Dick helped people come to realize all this and to relate differently to themselves, their arthritis symptoms got better, which is exactly what scientifically you would expect except that most rheumatologists don't even know what we're talking about because they're not trained in this stuff. We're talking here in part about the value for individuals in terms of their own psychology, their own well-being, their own functioning, quality of their relationships, the value for them in turning their critique outward and applying their anger appropriately outwardly and recognizing the ways in which a lot of their own personal suffering and issues is caused by factors outside their front door. Yep. And I think that connecting of the political and the personal was very alive and well when I kind of came, in, came of age in the 60s and 70s. And mm. in the last, I think, 20, 30 years, it's been pushed away almost, kind of dismissed, like, oh, you're not supposed to talk about that or, mm. you know, don't rant about politics. But in fact, I think it's really helpful for people to realize that a lot of their suffering related to the stresses and the history that they've had has to do with very powerful forces that are not their own. They yeah. they landed on them, but they didn't make them up. That's right. And that can be liberating and calming and it fosters self-compassion for people to, to mount that kind of critique of the forces outside them. Yes, uh, and what you're saying really is a, a larger version, I might say, of the question that Oprah and Bruce Perry asked in their most recent book called What Happened? Yeah. Not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? And the point I'm making in this book is that we have to ask that question, not just on the individual level, what happened to you as an individual, but what happened to us on the social, political, economic levels? Yeah. Because given that we're biopsychosocial creatures, which means that our biology can't be separated from our psychology or from our social relationships, shaping those social relationships are forces way beyond individual control. Mm. That has to do with politics and economics and historical forces. If we don't understand that, we don't have a map to understand ourselves. Mm. 
So earlier in the conversation, we gave a parable kind of a first nature versus second nature. We talked about the impact of the accrual of stress, whether you want to call it lowercase t trauma, allostatic load, whatever language you want to use around it. Yeah. A theme that runs under your work for me is this idea of something beneath, Mm. something that is undisturbed, something that's true to a person, a feeling of wholeness, a return to core nature, however you want to talk about it. Um, And that's really how you position healing. And so I'm wondering what you think supports people in that return to wholeness. Forever we've talked about our Christ nature or our Buddha nature or our Buddha self, the Atman versus the Brahman. You know, these concepts of a true self have been around since human thought and human spiritual endeavor. What I'm saying about it is that illness or what we call illness very often comes along as a sign that somehow we've departed from ourselves. And so that illness itself can be a call. Not that I would wish it up on anybody, but I interviewed a lot of people whose stories demonstrate that the illness served as a wake-up call of how they had unwittingly, in response to childhood pressures when they had no choice in the matter, abandoned themselves. And the disease was a call to return to themselves. A teacher that I, I, I honor, A.H. Almas, talks about the essential self. Dick Schwartz, who we just mentioned, talks about the self with a capital S. It's all the same language. And that is an aspect, an underlying ground aspect of human beings that, again, this society and this culture really seduces away from in urging and even pressuring us to find the satisfaction and the meaning outside of ourselves. And so many of the products and entertainments and activities that it fosters are designed to exploit that loss of connection to ourselves and to somehow temporarily fill in that hole, which inevitably results in a, in a crash. So yeah, there's that part of ourselves. And I think this can sound new agey and I hate something like that, but, and again, I don't wish illness on anybody, but it's almost like nature wants you to be yourself more than it wants you to survive. Hmm. In other words, nature wants to be true to itself is what I'm saying. And when we've lost connection to ourselves because of trauma, not because we've chosen it, disease often comes along. Not that I, I wouldn't say this to anybody who just diagnosed, hey, congratulations, your disease is here to wait. I, n- I never say that to anybody. What I'm talking about is what people themselves have discovered and have told me which is that through dealing with the illness, they become truly themselves for the first time in their lives that they can recall. Hmm. Now, whether I'd have the courage and the wisdom to do that if it happened to me, I don't want to find out. But I'm saying is that for these people who had that experience, it was that relationship to themselves that they had transformed. That's the key factor, it seems to be. In some ways, it reminds me of the research now on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm that it's typically the people who have self-transcendent oneness experiences in which the sense of self falls away and fairly dramatically the sense of reality altogether is present in radiant perfection. These are kind of paltry words, using your P word there, paltry uh, (laughs) descriptions, but still it's the ones who had, you know, the fireworks experiences of oneness really who tend to have the greatest impact on their intractable history of, let's say, depression. Yeah, that's right. If they can integrate that into their lives. Yeah, if, that's right. And I talk about psychedelics in the book, and 
Yeah. You don't need to have psychedelics to have those experiences. I mean, certainly in the Buddhist world, you know that. Yeah. And sometimes it's even better if you don't, because then it's more organic. Yeah. Easier to actually integrate into your life. But the key question is not just the experience as such, but then have you integrated that experience into your life? And I can tell you that as we speak, four weeks ago, I had one of these profound experiences with psychedelics, working with indigenous people here in British Columbia. It was transformative. Wow, yeah. Not just because of the psychedelic plant that we ingested, but because of the context of these Mm -hmm. deeply hurting, wounded, Mm -hmm. brave, dignified, loving people and the environment that they provided. I was invited to help their process, believe me, I was helped a lot more than they were helped, I believe. Mm. At least, or if I'm fortunate, it was e- the giving and the receiving was equal. Mm. But I'm telling you, yes, the psychedelic, but also that sacred context. What's the place for mourning, grieving? Somehow I'm really touched to there. Mm. Just grieving what wasn't present when we were young, What grieving the struggle we have to make every day to swim upstream in this culture that's, that is toxic. Yeah. Thinking about your own childhood, have a remarkable history yourself, just the place for grieving, mourning, the price we've paid. So remember I talked about the neuroscientist Panksepp, and he talked about this, what he called panic grief system in the brain. So when we have loss, we have to grieve it, because grieving means that we come to terms with the loss. Yeah. Hmm. Now, if we refuse to grieve or if we don't know how to grieve, that pain is just rooted in us and never lets go. Mm. Part of my problem in life, Rick, is that I, I refuse to grieve. I don't know that I refused at any kind of conscious level, but I suppose that the fear of it was, if the floodgates open, it'd be so huge that I wouldn't be able to handle it. A psychologist friend of mine, Gordon Neufeld, a sometime co-author, he said once beautifully, he said, we should be saved in an ocean of tears, he said, mm. that the tears of grief there's a song by the band, Tears of Grief, Tears of Rage. And the tears of grief are what save us. Grief comes in waves or in like a, a tide that comes in and out. It's not a once done and all phenomenon. But yeah, grief means, yeah, it's gone. It's never going to be any different. At some point I had to, it wasn't that long ago that I realized, not in the intellectual sense, which I already had always, but in the emotional sense, yeah, my grandfather and grandmother died in Auschwitz in a gas chamber, naked, probably hugging each other as this toxic gas seeped into the to the room. And that happened. And that's never not going to have happened. But I don't have to hold on to it. And I don't have to believe that there's something I can do about that it happened. And Bessel van der Kolk, the trauma psychiatrist said to me once, Gabor, you don't have to drag Auschwitz around with you everywhere you go. And when he said it, I kind of got what he was talking about intellectually, but it took years for me to integrate it. Mm. That can have happened, but the meaning that you created about life is a result of it. You don't have to drag that around. Yeah. What supported you in the acceptance piece of that? If you don't mind me asking, it's a personal question. A lot of failure, for one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of misery, a relationship <laughs> with a wonderful woman that I've been married to for 53 years. Yeah. A lot of teachers like Rick and others, mm. healing work that I did with myself, 
in my case, psychedelic work, some fairly undisciplined, but fairly recurrent spiritual work, you know, all that, mm. all that. And just witnessing what I've witnessed, mm. all that, all that supported me. I'm drawn to ask you a question, which is about your relationship with your children, yeah. because one of the things you've written about a lot is, is the ways in which these things can be cyclical, where you had an experience when you were very, very, very young of separation from your parent, the circumstances you describe, which were horrible and are really hard to wrap your brain around in any kind of a mm. functional way, and then raising your own kids. And so I'm wondering if part of your own process here was enabled and supported by being able to form a, a healthy relationship with your kids, ultimately. Well, so the next book that my son and I are going to write together, it will be called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children <laughs> and Their Parents. And that's just the workshop that we give. Mm. Love that, yeah. We'll be doing it this October in, in at Omega in New York, and we've given it a number of times. Mm. And this is my eldest son, Daniel. When I first discovered the meaning of trauma and how it's, not personal, but it's multi-generational. Yeah. And then I looked at how I parented my kids. I really got that I passed on a lot of trauma to my kids. Mm. My kids were raised by two very traumatized parents mm. before those parents realized that they were traumatized, which mm. means that we inevitably acted them out in one way or another. To give you a simple example, I talked about how my mother gave me to this stranger to save my life. I didn't see her for five weeks. What message did I get? I wasn't wanted. Yeah. So then, not being wanted, you go to medical school. <laughs> I've often said they're going to want you all the time when they're dying, when they're being born, and every minute in between that they're in trouble. They're going to want you, but they're going to want you. They're going to want what you can do for them. Mm, yeah. So it's a temporary hit, but it doesn't satisfy that basic not wantedness. And therefore, it's very addictive. Okay. Now, my kids grew up in leafy Vancouver, middle class home. There's no Second World War, nothing. But daddy is always working mm. because he needs to be wanted. What message did they get? Mm. But then I wanted, not because I didn't love them, yeah, but because I acted, that's what I acted out. That's just a small example of, of the traumas that we passed on to our kids. So as our kids were growing up, and I began to realize this trauma dynamic, multi-generational of it, nature of it, I used to say that I'm not worried that they'll be angry with me. I'm worried that they won't be angry enough. Because I wanted them to get in touch mm. with their anger at what they had missed or what they had suffered to the point where they got sick of it. They don't tell us anymore because they had to figure it out for themselves, didn't they? No amount of mea culpa and breastfeeding on my part would make any difference to them. They had to sort out these dynamics for their own. So there's been a huge repair in our family with our three adults, mm. huge repair, all three of them each in their own way, for which I'm very grateful. And I'm grateful to have long enough to see it happen. Mm. And it's an ongoing process of maturing together. But there's a lot to make up for, a lot, as I do indicate in the book. Yeah. And, and I don't say that in any sense of guilt at this point. I'm just talking objectively. That's what happened. I'm the dad that yelled at you. I'm the dad that wasn't around. I'm the dad that sat up with you all night when you were sick. I'm the dad that played with you and told you stories. And I'm also the dad that really hurt you and confused you out of the guy. Well, for starters, I think that that's just really lovely. Oh, I'm just looking at your five kinds of compassion. Mm. And in the context here, you know, ordinary human compassion, the compassion of curiosity and understanding, mm -hmm. the compassion of recognition, mm -hmm. the compassion of truth, the compassion of possibility. 
Mm-hmm. All of them land here when you tell your story. And I, of course, Forrest and I are going to be processing for hours. We're going to need some <laughs> professional help after this interview. Like, what were we thinking, Forrest? <laughs> and obviously, we should have been on shrooms or something. Then it all would have kind of processed. But anyway, it didn't. So in any case... They all seem kind of relevant here, particularly just the compassion of truth. I mean, that seems yeah. so central to your work, Yeah, Gabor. I, I thought it, in, I'll acknowledge this, in a good way, you made me uncomfortable mm-hmm. when I met you there mm-hmm. at the panel in Vancouver because you were, like I said, hardcore. Mm-hmm. You were just clearly unflinching and unyielding and truth-telling and truth-seeing and truth-honoring. Yeah. And I think that's central even to what you're talking about with your own family. I like the part of, a, of hardcore. I like the core part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can I be softcore? Like, you know, <laughs> I can be kind of unyielding and hard sometimes. It's true. But the compassion of truth is really very simple. In, in the final chapter of the book, I talk about disillusionment. Mm. And I talk about a, a series of disillusionment that I've had this time in the realm of politics. And people often say, well, that was disillusioning. And I I say to people, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would you rather believe a bunch of stuff that's not true? Would you rather see reality? But reality is painful sometimes, isn't it? I could name any nation in the world. It's nice to believe that my nation is the pure shining city on the hill. It's painful to realize that your nation actually is acted in a predatory, cruel way to other peoples. I can name almost any people in the world and say that too. That's a Mm. disillusionment. But would you rather know the truth of it or would you rather pretend to yourself? So the truth can be painful. So there's no compassion in protecting people from truth. No, it has to be delivered in a way that's loving and gentle and compassionate. But remember what Jesus said. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will liberate you. He did not say the truth will liberate you. He said, you will know the truth, that only the knowledge of truth can free us. And this is true both in the personal and the political realm. So that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by the compassion of truth, is that you're not afraid to guide people to the truth, and you're not afraid of the pain they're going to experience when the truth lands. It's often very painful at first, but it's if it's there, it's necessary. Mm. Now, I can temper that by the Sufi teaching around speaking. They say, before you say something, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And these are what they call the three gates of speech. So if you can meet all those, pass all those three gates, then say it. If you can't, don't say it. So I'm not talking about untrammeled, shoving the truth in people's faces. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Mm. If it is, and if it hurts, that's a healthy pain. Well, I think that that is actually in many ways a great summary of a lot of what we've talked about here today. Mm. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? And so much of it just comes down to seeing clearly. It sounds like seeing ourselves clearly, seeing the environment clearly, and coming to terms with the things that have happened to us and the real impacts that those things have had over time in terms of our behavior, our lives, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with other people. And I would just like to really thank you again for taking the time to do this today. This was just a wonderful conversation that I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. Well, thank you. And I thank both of you for this close reading of the book, Mm. which really allowed me to say what I want to say. Mm -hmm. The biggest gift you can give to a guest is to 
give them the venue to really express themselves, and you've done that beautifully. So thank you. Mm. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Gabor, and really appreciate you a lot in your work and what you stand in and witness for and as in this culture. And I grew up in the suburbs of Los Angeles where there was just tremendous artifice and happy, smiley, manufactured faces. And just in your own example and presence and history, you know, you really stand for truth. You really stand in the truth and for the truth and with the truth. And truly, for that, I I am grateful to you personally Mm. and as a human on this planet. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both very much. So today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gabor Matai, and I can say completely honestly that this was one of my personal favorite conversations that we've ever had on the podcast, and I hope that you got as much out of it as I did. We began today's conversation by grounding it in the subtitle of his new book, which is The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And a great way to think about the toxic elements of our culture are present in that word culture itself, like the culture that you can create in a petri dish. And if that culture is inhospitable to the organisms inside of it, if it leads to illness, death, disease, problems of various kinds, we would refer to it as toxic. And you see much the same in the circumstances that we're exposed to in our modern environments. And Gabor situates that toxicity in part in terms of the needs we have as humans, which come from our developmental needs. We particularly have these when we are very young and very vulnerable. But when I was reading his book, I was really struck by the ways in which he represents our developmental needs as being great proxies for just the needs we have in adulthood. And he highlighted three key needs. First, a deep sense of contact and connection with other people. This might be the unconditional love given by a parent to their infant child. The child really needs to know that somebody loves and cares about them. Second, and I thought that this was such a big one, a security in self-valuing. In other words, the ability to rest from the work of earning the right to be who you are. And I find that language just so powerful and so evocative because the healthy child doesn't need to constantly earn their parents' approval. They don't need to constantly monitor that they are being too much. And if a child is worried about these things, is worried that their behavior is putting too much of a load on the parent and that by executing these behaviors, they won't get what they need, wow, that's a profoundly insecure environment to grow up in. Then third, the child needs permission to feel their emotions, particularly the difficult and painful ones. For our emotions to remain accessible, the environment must allow them to be safely experienced. Uh, That means that the child's expression of feeling can't threaten the attachment relationship with the parents. In other words, we need the ability to remain emotionally vulnerable around other people. And what happens if we can't? What happens if we don't? Those emotions have to go somewhere, so we push them down, we hold on to them. And this got us into a whole conversation about repressed anger. And so if we look out at the culture inside of the framework of those core needs, what do we see? Well, we see a total lack of connection with other people by and large, a extreme disconnection inside of the the cultural organism. 
what some have called an epidemic of loneliness. And then we see a sense of personal worth that's almost entirely tied to perception, what we can do and be for other people. When there isn't that sense of inherent worthiness, there can be no rest from the act of constantly seeking the approval of other people in order to approve of ourselves. And then what do we see about emotion? We see massive repression of emotion where people are absolutely not safe in expressing their anger, their hurt, or their sadness to other people. And this is before getting to any of the large-scale, massive, structural issues that society is grappling with right now. Everything from our overarching capitalistic framework, the, the commodification of humans on a global scale, disconnection and separation, the way in which addiction has been commodified by large companies that are trying to take advantage of the brain's pleasure circuitry, uh, the effective sociopathy of those who work in politics and big business, a valuing of current profit over the large-scale and long-term well-being of people, and rampant sexism, classism, racism, and so on. And so what are the consequences of this toxic environment? Well, they manifest inside of our behaviors, inside of the way that we view ourselves and think about ourselves, and therefore the ways in which we manifest out in the world. And this led me to a question about addiction, which has been a major focus of Gabor's work. He spent an enormous amount of time working directly with people who struggle with addiction, and his definition of addiction, I think, is probably the absolute best one in the field. He defines it simply as anything we do to relieve pain in the short term that has consequences in the long term that we're unable or struggle to stop. And a key point of that is that while we normally think about addiction as being substance-related, really any behavior can be an addiction if it meets that criteria. And a critical point about addiction is that it is a coping response. It is a thing that occurs in response to stress. In other words, nobody wants to be addicted. They're looking for some form of relief from the pain that they are experiencing. And so Gabor asks us to ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. What are the roots of those painful experiences that people are trying to escape? And so I would imagine that he thinks of things like the opioid epidemic in the United States as not based on a moral fault of individuals, but rather as the almost natural outcome of a damaged society. And one of the things that underlies that damage that really creates the kind of lowercase t traumatic experiences that we focused on throughout the conversation is this core conflict between attachment and authenticity. We want to attach to other people. We want to be in relationship with them. But also we want to be authentic to ourselves. And that's a kind of social dance that we perform constantly. How much do I want to constrain or limit or sugarcoat my views, my personalities, my expressions with this other person in order to stay in positive relationship with them? And this got us into really a very touching and, and very personal conversation about my dad's experiences as a child, about Gabor's experiences as a child, and the residues and consequences of those experiences through time, including how parents influence their children and pass these issues on. 
And alongside that, I think really the healing potential that is possible in coming to terms with these experiences, coming to terms with the things that have happened to us. My dad asked a, a beautiful question about how we position grief inside of this whole process. And Gabor had a equally beautiful response to it, where he talked about laying down the stone of the horrific things that had happened to his grandparents, the horrific things that happened to him when he was a child that he couldn't influence, he couldn't control, and yet they were impacting him. But a major part of that process was about accepting the presence of them and then going through a lengthy, lengthy process of coming to terms. And this process of coming to terms allows us to come back into relationship with something else. A first nature rather than a second nature, as we talked about during the conversation, maybe something a little truer, a little wholer than the way that we are right now. And in the book, Gabor outlines four A's that help us do this. The first one is authenticity, which is finding our inner voice, finding what's true to us. Again, that conflict between authenticity and attachment. Then second, agency, which he describes as the capacity to freely take responsibility for our existence. Yes, things happen to us, but what can we influence today? What can we take responsibility for? Then, third A, big topic during this conversation, anger, particularly reaccessing the healthy forms of anger that are often socially repressed. And finally, fourth, acceptance, which is a recognition of the truths of this moment. And I'd like to leave you today with a final thought from Gabor. He frames trauma not as what happened to a person, but how it changed them. And I think that that's just an absolutely beautiful framing of it, because we can't do anything about what happened to us, but we might be able to impact how it changes us. And it allows us to take a role in small ways over time, probably with a lot of deliberate effort in reclaiming our own wholeness. So again, the book is The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It goes on sale September 13th, and it's available for pre-order right now. And I just got to say, it's a fantastic book. And if you're interested in the podcast, I think that you'll really enjoy it. I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode, and you can also probably find it pretty easily by searching for it. If you've been enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support us, the best way to do that is by subscribing. So you can subscribe to it through whatever platform you happen to be listening to it on right now. And also you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach more people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return, things like ad-free versions of the episodes, transcripts of the episodes, and expanded show notes where I dive into all of the research that goes into everything that we produce. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.